Hey there, welcome to this episode of the Skiff Meetings Podcast, the podcast for curious professionals embracing the future of business events. My name is Miguel Neves, and I'm the editor-in-chief of Skiff Meetings. And in this episode titled Delivering Exceptional Meeting Experiences, I have the pleasure of speaking with Mark Cooper, the CEO of IAC. In our conversation, we cover things like the core differences between a small event in a meeting venue and a large convention in a convention center. Why food is so important to the success of meetings. The sometimes unappreciated value of knowledgeable and experienced staff that take ownership of their role. How automation is a game changer for meeting venues. And why, despite an obvious desire for in-person events, the cliche of, if you can do it on Zoom, it has no place in the room, is not going away anytime soon. I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation, and if you like what you hear, make sure you check out our other episodes of the podcast on our website or subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And now for a word from our sponsors, PHL Life Sciences, a division of the Philadelphia Convention and Visitors Bureau. Host your convention or trade show in Philadelphia, one of America's leading life sciences hubs. PHL Life Sciences, the first and only CVB division of its kind, will connect you to the professionals at the forefront of your industry and to a culture you can only find in Philadelphia. A city known for its rich history that's forging a bright future, Philadelphia challenges the expected and defies convention. A world of discovery is waiting. Visit phllife.com to learn more. Hello there, welcome to this episode of the Skift Meetings podcast. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with Mark Cooper, the CEO of IAC. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Miguel. I'm delighted to join you today. Thank you for the invitation. Mark, we've known each other for a few years. I'm going to say something like 10 years like that. Uh, I've known, I think, mainly through uh, MPI and IMAX and kind of uh, participating in events. Uh, but I'd love you to introduce yourself uh, and, and explain a little bit of, of your journey and how you ended up um, in your current role as CEO of IAC. Um, I'd be happy to. Well, my journey started earlier than most as I grew up in my grandparents' public house uh, in a little rural pub in England uh, uh, as a child. So, you know, I started waiting on tables when I think I was probably around 10 or 11. Uh, and my journey took me um, from that point onwards, right the way through the uh, conference and meetings industry, the hotel industry. And I joined as a humble YTF youth training scheme in, in Devere hotels in England at the age of 16 and um, I've had just the most incredible career from that point onwards through working with within hotel groups in the UK university conference centers international conference venue groups like Dolce hotels and resorts in Europe um, represented the third party sector uh, so I uh, had the opportunity not only to be hosting meetings in our own venues, but hosting meetings around the world with organizations like Conference Direct. And then, you know, through IAC, I um, had the privilege of leading 400 of the most innovative entrepreneurial venues and operators uh, 12 years ago. Um, so, uh, yes, uh, it, it's been quite a journey with IAC alone, but what, what a career. Um, wouldn't change it for the world. Sounds great. I remember as a child, as being a waiter was sort of my dream career, um, you know, for fun. And, and I did have quite a few different bits. I did some silver surface training, but I've never worked in hotel as a, as a kind of a main job. So, but can definitely appreciate that. 
Um, so your role is, is pretty unique. I mean, IAC is, is quite an interesting association. I'd like to talk a little bit about that. But before we go there, um, just a fun question that I think always brings out some interesting uh, things as well. How do you explain to your friends and family that aren't in the industry uh, what, you, what your job is and what, what maybe your company does or your organization does? <laughs> um, well, um, twofold. It's how I explain that to my to friends and family, but then also how I explain it to customs officers when I'm going <laughs> through border control into other countries, normally attending um, a conference. So I say that I, I represent conference centres and I'm attending a conference on conference centres, and that always um, gets a quizzical look by return. Uh, so, all right, you're having a conference about conferences. That's interesting. But, um, <clears throat> you know, how how I explain it to, to to friends and colleagues is really we are the um, with the association or the body that is there to support the collective good of the industry. Um, so just like in the United Kingdom, you might have the National Farmers Union um, representing all farmers and the best interests of what they do. Um, IAC, I think, and I hope plays its part in recognizing and representing those that really focus on conferences, meetings and training courses, specifically of less than 250 attendees. So the smaller part, but arguably one of the largest parts of the meetings industry worldwide. Okay, well, let's let's dig into that a little bit further, if, if you will. So IAC, it is just called IAC now, right? So that is the, the official name. You made that, that call, but it was the International Association of Conference Centers, am I correct? Yes, it was, Miguel. Um, so IAC has been running, well, it was founded in 1981. So, you know, throughout the industry and globally, uh, the association is fondly known as IAC, the only word that rhymes with kayak, I've been told. Um, <laughs> so, um, uh, you know, get some sponsorship we, there. Eh? <clears throat> there you go. Um, uh, and, um, you know, I as the industry has evolved, the word conference center doesn't necessarily equal excellence today. Anyone can put the name conference center over their property, um, you know, front door. And, um, you know, arguably within certain parts of the world, the quality has been eroded by overuse of that word. And so, you know, we now not only represent conference centers, but we represent executive training centers, hotels with a real focus on um, meetings and conferences, conventions hotels. So conference centers singularly doesn't represent all of our membership. However, within our membership, we do have a still a large number that are excellent that do use the word conference centers. So we retained IAC for historical reasons. We just stopped referring to ourselves exclusively as conference centers now. And tell me a little bit about the, the the companies that you represent, the venues that you represent, there's a specific criteria. I know you've also changed that recently, right? But I wanted to understand the specific criteria around IAC membership. Yeah, we have indeed. We've gone through one of our largest fundamental reviews, um, certainly in, in the 12 years that I've been in the role. Um, really at a very high level, we want to represent the top 1% of um, meetings and com small conference focused venues in the world. Yeah. And that footprint really is one where the average group size or the real focus is on group sizes of less than 250, quite often less than 100 attendees. The full service 
conference venue offer for an event, you know, in its low hundreds versus an event in its high thousands, as as you know, Miguel, is very, very different. And um, so we leave the larger events and that real focus around large event management to ICA. Um, and we represent those smaller properties, um, training, conference and meeting venues, which take on a myriad of different forms. I mean, one of the ones that you may not appreciate exists today and has done for, for some time is the Corporate Conference Centre. Many of the world's largest organisations own and operate their own management and conference and training venues around the world. So Deloitte University in Dallas, Texas is one of the largest and that has 800 guest rooms, operates at the top end of a four-star standard, 70 to 80 meeting and conference rooms, and they're just adding 600 more guest rooms so they will be at 1400 guest rooms very soon um uh, ge the famous jack welsh crotonville training center uh, general electric cap gemini in paris um you know just to name but a few we have over 30 of those that are corporate owned and operated outside of that the more obvious commercial venues um, around the world in europe you know, you have the very exclusive venues like Chateau Form, which I say uh, I like the sandals, but for the meetings industry, that all-inclusive approach to um, to conferences and training, uh, hotels, resorts, urban conference and training centres. They've been one of our largest growing sectors. Organisations like ETC venues in the UK uh, and others to name, but a few, um, and then academic conference venues is a a large part and a very successful and high quality focused management training and conference facilities. So yeah. we're very lucky. We have many categories and our standards of brilliance um, uh, review that we've had more recently has widened our footprint a little. So we were starting to see that there was some really good quality, full service, what they what what are often referred to as convention hotels. So not convention centers, not uh, exhibition centers, but convention hotels like Postilion uh, hotels in the Netherlands that were offering really incredible services. So um, we are welcoming them into our membership as well from uh, from this summer. So a few clarifying questions. Um, you mentioned these larger uh, corporate centers, uh, that the one you mentioned, you know, 1400 rooms soon, something like that. But they still qualify because their focus is the smaller meetings. Is that what I'm hearing? Correct. So there's there would still be members or would they sort of then start creeping outside of your scope? Uh, no, they're still absolutely focused on conference and training, particularly training and management training. So they exist for the development of their staff worldwide. Mm -hmm. And and um, so they absolutely fit our footprint. The meeting rooms are designed for meetings. The technology is, uh, is built in. The acoustics, the lighting is all at a quality level that ensures that um, they offer the very best adult learning environment. So, um, so they, they meet our criteria often easily because those organizations are investing at a very high level to provide the comfort and quality. The, the one in De, uh, Deloitte University in Dallas, as an example, it consumes more Starbucks coffee uh, than DFW Airport. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, they're, and they're second only uh, to, uh, to that property because everything is provided and inclusive for the attendees because it's a closed facility for their mm -hmm. employees only. But we have many other different variations, TD Bank, 
um, Sun Life of Canada, Verizon have an incredible hub in Boston, New York, which is just the most fantastic facilities and excellent technology. And we're taking our annual conference next year in the Americas to Baskin Ridge in New Jersey to the Verizon conference and training facility there. And I hear the technology will blow your mind. Um, I'm sure you'd like to join us, Miguel, because I know technology is a big part of your background and interest. Absolutely. And I know you're going to be in Copenhagen or near Copenhagen in October as well for your European event, right? So that will be... We, we are. Yeah. Our Knowledge yeah. Festival is a, is a highlight event and, uh, and nowhere better than Scandinavia. And certainly from a culinary trends uh, and quality perspective, of course, Copenhagen is a, is a real uh, attraction for our industry leaders. For sure. So I wanted to dive in a little bit deeper on the, so you, you mentioned quality, and I think it's interesting that you're positioning very much saying, hey, you know, you have convention centers, some of them do great jobs, but catering and, and kind of managing events for thousands and thousands of people is a very different thing, is a very different proposition to doing small groups where you can really guarantee high quality food. Uh, you know, everybody's got a great seat, everybody can see everything, all those kind of things. I, I assume that's sort of part of a but I wanted to dive in a little bit into the criteria. You mentioned criteria, this, the, the, the brilliance uh, that you mentioned. How do you, how do you measure this? Like, could you give us just a, a broad overview of the sort of type of things that you're looking at and how you actually measure those? Do you personally go to the venues? Do they have to submit? How does that work? Um, so, so yes, as part of the application process, if we have a, a property that feels like they have a place within our community and importantly, feels like they want to be a part of our community from a perspective, from the from the aspect of um, of thought leadership, creativity, and ideas exchange, you know, so that's why you would join IAC first of all, not for lead generation like a marketing consortium. So if you meet that stage and that uh, within the process, then the next point is, do the facilities represent, you know, what we would expect to be in the top one percent in the world? Now to do that, um, it it runs across all aspects of what the venue offers. So yes, from the physical um, characteristics of the venue, as you would expect, the meeting room, the acoustics, the lighting, um, through to the technology, uh, food and beverage offer. Do they offer, you know, packaging? both rigid and flexible packaging to be able to have that all-inclusive approach to, to to buying the services at a per-person attendee level. But but it doesn't just stop there. Um, the, the sustainability credentials, the corporate social responsibility credentials as well um, are very important and have been become a bigger part of our evaluation of the credentials of venues in this latest review. Um, do they create an environment that is, um, you know, that's conducive with um, stimulating the mind, making individuals feel invested in? And that's not to say that larger venues, Miguel, can't offer that. Um, they, they can, um, but quite often it is the case that the larger the event, the, the plainer the box that you then have to build everything within it. Whereas when you're operating an event of less than 250 people, and often in that 100s and low 100s and less, then you should be able to actually put yourself in an inspiring venue, uh, an environment that you don't have to create from scratch. You know, you really don't have to go to a boring ballroom in a hotel, in an urban environment, you know, that that needs that venue to be, you know, to serve multiple functions throughout the, the year. 
um, and build something from scratch. A, that's not very sustainable. B, it's very expensive and creates another job or layers of jobs for the meeting professional where actually there's some incredibly inspiring venues where that is already built it's already in place the the group that used the room the day before and the group that will use the room after you've used it will get those facilities and the use of that technology already built in then we think it's far more efficient we think it's better value for money and uh, we do think it is you know it, it is a stronger proposition for the planet as well so standards of brilliance has to stand up against all of those different pillars and be continually reworked. Now, you asked me the question of how you evaluate. Well, every new venue that puts forward an application is appraised by the board and there's a site inspection by a board member or representative of IAC to make sure that that facility meets those standards. And we do turn a lot of facilities away. There are something like 60 tenants that they meet have to meet through the application process. And that does allow us to shortlist uh, very quickly uh, those that do not meet the IAC standard. Yeah, I think I think what you mentioned there about uh, the black box kind of approach or kind of bringing a lot of people in is is a real differentiator here, right? Because I assume a lot of these venues are also quite inspiring or have really are in beautiful settings, etc. Some are urban, I, I understand, but but still. Um, this idea of you bringing a meeting into a place that is inspiring in itself and into a building that is inspiring and has everything ready for you to go, I think is a very different proposition from you going somewhere and putting on the production and creating the scenario and doing all those kinds of things. Yeah, it is. It allows you to focus exclusively on the content, on the developing of the social elements of the program, which, are, of course, are bigger and more important to get right today. So, um, it you know, it, it does allow you to be efficient as a meeting professional, um, whilst all those other benefits are in place as well, in my in my view. So I also know that copper skillet competition is a big part of IAC. Um, could you kind of explain what that is and, and how it works because i'm always seeing these copper skillet kind of press releases and photos <laughs> and they look amazing and i and i'm not always always sure how they kind of connect together with with iac yeah it's like um it's like the tennis the open uh in tennis so it's a global tournament all of our countries have have cook-off competitions or those countries with density in terms of our membership uh they have uh, their own cook-off competitions for their chefs Really, it was born out of the fact that um, some 15 years ago, chefs never used to come out of the kitchen. Um, they were an invisible entity. And Copper Skillet was invented to, to, to actually try to demonstrate the artistry and the quality of food and beverage within the meetings industry. Back then as well, um, it would get a hard rap in terms of, you know, quality. Sometimes it was viewed as being um, sort of clinical and, you know, and, you know, institutional, uh, where really within, within the IAC venues, arguably the, it was the polar opposite. And so it was designed to bring chefs out to celebrate the quality and the passion that they put into food. And um, the competition is a huge draw and has only become bigger and bigger as a result of everybody's increased um, interest in relation to food quality. So those chefs compete in front of their audience, in front of their peers, in front of meeting planners, um, you know, it's a, you know, in front of media to find a junior and senior champion that will then go on from a country-based competition to compete in the chapter um, competition, which is either the Americas chapter, Europe or Australia, Asia Pacific. 
And then we have the global final, which um, just took place at our annual conference in Durham, North Carolina in April, which has the winners of each of those chapters competing. And it's a fantastic event. But I think other than the spectacle of it and, and you know, elevating the quality and, you know, promoting the quality, it's also a really important development um, element for the chefs themselves. They get to compete in different parts of the world against chefs with different culinary backgrounds. And so, um, you know, it's really important for us to retain talent. And by providing a, you know, a, a quality competition like that, hopefully, um, and we hear it is the case that chefs, you know, value that from their employer investing in them competing in the competition. So, yeah, I hope uh, I, it sounds like you need to come and see a live one. Um, <laughs> so the, the invitation is there. Come to Warwick conferences in the UK, Miguel, uh, 19th of July, and you'll be able to see one of those cook-offs taking place. I think, you know, food is obviously a, it's a big part of my life. And I think it's a big part of, of, of lots of uh event professionals and meeting professionals life but i think it's you raise a really interesting point because i'm really not aware of any other association that is that connected with the catering side and i'm talking about meetings industry associations so you're really connecting the dots and also exemplifying the much closer connection at uh, conference centers as, and then the other types of venues that are your members to the food and the quality of the food than you would at other types of events and other types of kind of uh, sizes of events and uh, sorry, sizes of venues and, and the different kind of things. So I think it's really interesting that that plays such a big part in in what you do. And I guess in bringing your members together. Um, food is either the glue that knits an event together or it's the bomb that explodes it. Um, uh, and it provides and when it goes wrong. It provides all of the distractions with the attendees that mean that they only ever talk about it. So it is an incredibly important element of the overall meetings experience to get right. And because it is one that, of course, touches more senses within the human body than anything else, it has the ability to create the memories um, really, you know, uh, better than anything else as well. So that's why we place it at the heart of a lot of what we do um, and, um, and feel it's a really important element of the overall meetings experience. Are you ready to celebrate your successes in the world of meetings and events? The Skift Meetings Awards are back for 2024, recognizing the most innovative business events companies across 15 categories, and we want you to be a part of it. Winners will feature on Skift Meetings, sending a clear signal to events professionals around the world that these are partners they can rely on. The final deadline for submissions is June 11th. We encourage you to start your submission today to secure the best entry rates. For more information and to start your submission, head to live.skift.com. I wanted to go back to a little bit of, you know, the things that are important to DIAC and the things that you assess with, with your members. Um, and if you if you will allow me to sort of paraphrase the Jim Collins book from good to great uh, or the title of the book, I'm thinking about, you know, what makes an event go from good to great. Uh, and I'm assuming, you know, you, you'd want to put the great ones at, at one of your venues. But what is it that makes those events great you mentioned the food already but are there other elements that you think are really crucial for events to kind of knock it out of the park if you will so apart from of all of the elements needing to be absolutely at the top of their game the one silent element which is the difference to me is knowledge and longevity of the staff um so that's really you know really how 
the the team carry the knowledge to create a seamless, incredibly well delivered event, um, particularly at the moment as well as the industry recovers and some of that knowledge has dissipated and you know and gone away. Then when you don't have highly knowledgeable staff on site that can deal with it, when you, for instance, you know, don't have a IT and AV solution, uh, you only have an AV solution, then, then that, that's what makes a difference. The, the longevity I mentioned as well is in relation to staff. Uh, I've always been a believer through working within the industry for as long as I have is that the, the companies and the venues that have the staff with the longest stable tenure um, and they're not turning staff over all the time. Um, this, the outcome of that is that they take greater ownership. So they take it personally. They take it personally when they get it right. They take it personally when it goes wrong. Um, and so that ownership, I think, you know, and that knowledge collectively is really critical element and the hard, hardest element if you're a meeting professional to evaluate um, who asks in their RFP what your you know annual average turnover of staff is or your average tenure of your staff you know you just don't do it um, but you certainly know when you're in safe hands and you're at a venue and you feel like that that that, staff, that group of staff get it and are working harmoniously together. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. I made a few notes there already, so uh, thank you for that. So wanted to jump into research. I know that you do a, a lot of different types of research. The, the meeting room of the future is one that really springs up. And then you also have, I guess, live labs. I don't know if that's a, a correct definition, but you, you kind of have representations of your research and you also present your research, but you also have kind of live activities around the research at events like MPI, WEC and other events. Take us through yeah. a little bit of, of, of what you're doing there in terms of research and then also the live embodiment of the research. Uh, I'd be pleased to. And, you know, it's one, one of our backbone initiatives for the association that's now in its seventh year of Ike Meter in the future. It was born simply out of the fact, Miguel, that um, all of the research that was available in the industry tended to point towards or really focus on big metrics and larger events. Um, it would, and, and very credible in its own right, but certainly didn't feel like it had that focus of on events of less than 200 attendees in terms of trends, where the industry is going, where the innovation is. So Meeting Room in the Future was born out of a frustration that, um, you know, that there was no real focus on smaller conferences, meetings and events. Um, IAC felt that, and we did feel like we were well connected through our partnerships with both the most entrepreneurial venue operators over four continents, which is our membership, of course, um, but also the best suppliers within the conference um, venue group. And then also those ambassadors, the sort of gurus that were experts in certain areas. And of course, through our partnerships as well with organizations like MPI, CVEN, Events Industry Council, et cetera. So we felt we were in a position to do something by drawing on that collective knowledge. Um, and Meeting Room in the Future was born out of that. It's continued pace. One year we will ask meeting professionals what they're looking for or expect venues to deliver in the next three years and then the following year we ask venue operators the same set of questions of course we're looking for common trends but we're also looking to pull out where there's differences of opinion because we can educate one or or both parties in that regard 
we carried on through uh, the pandemic. We we actually uh, switched gears last year and we delivered four reports instead of one. And the main reason being is the industry was recovering and changing so quickly um, that, you know, by the time you'd written the report, um, we'd change gear again and we'd work stuff out and we realized where we were going back to. So um, so so that that is the background. That's what we do. That's what we invest in as an organization. And of course, you know, the value of that is not only to the those venue operators that want to be designing their and redesigning their own facilities for three to five years in the future, but also for the industry um, to be able to wider industry to pick it up. And that's why we take it into uh, environments like IMEX and MPI WEC is we just get greater value um, as long as we get the opportunity to deliver it in our way. And that's worth pointing out. So having just returned this weekend from from WEC in Mexico, we actually built out one of the meeting rooms in the convention arena um, and designed it specifically um, around the concept of the future of meetings. So um, so it was a big investment to do it, um, not only in the physical elements of the room, the technology as supported by, by Encore, who were brilliant to create us a round meeting room with technology that was visual and sound that was easy to pick up um, right the way around the room, but also in ter terms of the content as well. So we brought in uh, Eric de Groot, uh, from Mind Meetings in the Netherlands, and he facilitated um, at least uh, six of the sessions that we ran, some of them around the report and the findings, um, but others really around the concepts of um, things like inclusive menu planning, um, foods of the future, uh, technologies and where they're, where they're developing in a way that um, is not a, a, you know, a, a typical trade show linked or larger conference linked presentation in a dull room with no natural daylight we and we did have natural daylight as well and the sun was shining so um yeah we we enjoyed putting that together the big investment but we also feel it's important that that's what IAC represents I, I like it and uh Eric's been on the podcast so I imagine if he was facilitating there was a lot of interesting discussions and also quite open-ended questions were asked um 100 that's all 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 that happened <laughs> um but feedback we turned you know we we were turning people away at uh, nearly every session uh for the two days we ran eight sessions and we had to control the numbers so that it was a meaningful group size where size where it became facilitated learning as opposed to presentation mm -hmm. and you know i'm not not saying that it's um, something we enjoy doing, turning people away, but it certainly demonstrated that the intent was there, the appetite, and people just arrived earlier for the next session to get in. <laughs> it's a problem, but a good problem to have. Um, yeah. it, it's also interesting that you had to build this out, right, where you were talking about your venues or places where you don't have to build things out, but in this case, you, you had to build it out because MPIWC was in a box kind of convention center, so you had to create that yeah. scenario as you wanted to we we would do as we would have to at imex or you know ibtm or one of the other events just because of the, the facilities that need to exist 
Absolutely. So let's pick on trends a little bit. You, you've just released the, the, the future, uh, the room, meeting room of the future, the, the latest one. Any trends that really stand out for you uh, that you think are important for meeting planners, essentially our audience? There were several that stood out, honestly, this year, Miguel, maybe because this was the first time we'd gone back to meeting planners in this way since 2019. So, you know, the last normal year um, and a number of things stood out uh, to us. So um, first of all, um, you know, that that saying, you know, if you can do it on Zoom, it has no place in the room is one that. I think is a really powerful one. And, and that's linked to the fact that to invest our time and money in traveling and attending live events, it must be something in an environment that we deliver that is, um, that is you know, um, unique. Um, now, it's an overcoined expression, I know, you know, creating exceptional meeting experiences. However, you know, it's just the fact that that is not going away and it's been accelerated even more. Um, if we want to use a different phrase, you know, because that's what we do after a while of using the same one, um, but it's still being relevant, then what we're doing is we have to create um, um, uh, memories for, for attendees, positive memories for attendees. Um, and that's something that, you know, helps draw out the value of attending the event even further, the respect for a brand, the re, you know the, the 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 retained knowledge. So you know and that's where we say you know the more things, the more things you know change, the more they stay the same. So we've got to keep creating new experiences and memories, and the venue has to play its part in doing that. Otherwise, it's a big hard job to do it. Um, outside of that, some interesting ones I thought. One was that traditional team building, uh, team development was was out. People were not interested in it. It was scoring very lowly. Um, however, that's not to be confused with um, creating team dynamics through socializing. So the socializing part is really important, and that's building relationships to build a you know to build effective teams. But people just don't want to do it in the old traditional ways of you know being in an outdoor area, being given a problem and a task to solve, and you know and and the old school way of doing it. Um, other ones we've come out of this pandemic. Definitely appreciating more open spaces within venues. How many meeting professionals are evaluating the social spaces outside of the main meeting room as much as they're scrutinizing the meeting room itself? Um, not many. We're still focused very much on, you know, what's the size of the plenary room? How's that going to work? What technology is in it as opposed to the spaces outdoors? Um, and in the same sort of or in a similar vein, um, groups and meeting professionals are looking for more privacy than they had before from other groups. Uh, so they are they are recognizing and appreciating exclusivity a lot more or even exclusivity around break stations, lunch stations. So the industry needs to uh, acknowledge that um, and be able to provide solutions for organizations there. Um, more contentious ones. Um, let's let's draw analogies. Of course, we're looking across geographical and generation, uh, different generations. Uh, when we look at the importance of sustainability for uh, Europeans versus Americans, then it's scoring much lower in America in terms of significance or importance over the next three years than it is in Europe. Uh, so that's something that we need to be aware of. 
mm-hmm. and the industry needs to, I guess, acknowledge um, if something is waning because something else is more important rather than something you know, being less important, then we've got to try harder um, if we're going to continue to make the strides around um, creating events and making sure our industry is not, um, you know, not considered in the same vein as the tobacco industries in the (laughs) 1980s. So that's really important. That would be good. So a little bit of a overarching trend that I'm seeing, and I don't know if you agree with me, but picking up on what you were saying about um, the social element of events, mm. I, I feel like we're, uh, this might sound strange, but I feel like events are returning to 2007. And what I mean by that is that before the financial crisis, I think events were much more open about the hospitality side, the social element, the kind of enjoying the event as a, as a human being. And then I think we got very serious. We kind of went, no, we have to prove that we're a serious industry and we have to make sure we have ROI and we have to measure how much we're worth, etc. And then there came the pandemic and of course everything shut down and now we're recovering. And I think the latest trends that I'm seeing is, oh yes, you know, the younger demographics enjoy, like want to enjoy themselves. They want an excuse to bring their partners. And I feel like events are really embracing this. So do you see any, do you see the same trend happening? What do you think about that? A hundred percent. And sometimes our industry, the longer you've been in it, the more circular it becomes or secular in terms of, you know, some of the things coming back and going away and then coming back again. Um, I think undoubtedly um, the, the requirement to measure in quite the same way as you did before uh, it you know goes away um you know when there is just a common belief or common understanding that that's something that's really important for us i i do you know think as as others do um that the the one thing that the last three years has done and the reason why it's fueling this um positively is 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 taken away any real question that was on the table that you know online can replace live events if anything um it's really highlighted the areas where you can deliver something online but you know only to a to a point where you then must have the human interaction um whether that be on a regional basis national basis or on a global basis um so so it 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 has you know it has accelerated it has taken away some of the you know the more considered ways of measuring that i i do think I do think it's important to measure memories, so you know, and and look at events in terms of well, everything that we do within a meeting or a conference, you know, what is this? What what is the sense that we are stimulating there for an attendee? And if anything is not stimulating two or more senses, then potentially, you know, you're under delivering on what are very high standards these days. Um, but also back to two thousand and seven. Um, when I think about it then, we were still talking very much then about the power of networking rather than the power of human interaction and socializing. So I think I think actually we we've you know we've come fullest we, we've gone more in the direction than you know or gone further in that direction than we did in even in 2007 when there was still or that period when there was still um uh, yeah it, it needed to be a considered business. Um, yeah. you know, a set of ROIs. Absolutely. Do you think there's any danger that a economic uncertainty, any sort of recession would trigger the same kind of feelings of 
uh, you know, meetings being seen as just big parties and a sort of backlash against them, like we saw with with the financial crisis? Yes, I think we should always be uh, mindful of the fact that the environments, organizational environments, as they shift, um, one of the taps that is the quickest to turn off our live events, meetings, training and development, um, you know, particularly at times of, of fiscal um, distress for, for organizations or economies on a global basis. Um, so I think we should always be very mindful of that. Um, and the only thing you can do to protect yourself from that is A, be exceptional as a venue so that you are turning away a lot more business than wants to come and run its event with you. So when that demand drops, you are still successful. Um, and you have the relationships in place, which means that the loyalty exists. And that's not always the case. If you're not a great venue, people will flip from one venue to the next to the next and see search in those times, the cheaper option or, you know, or, or, or the better option. Um, and, um, uh, and also be more financially prepared for downturns in the future. I think that's the one thing that we've learned. Um, our war chests have to be um, have to be there to protect us during those difficult times. So we can protect the staff and the knowledge that we've that we've got. And that that's a really important thing as opposed to protecting our profitability, is protecting our talent. Yeah, we saw from the restarts or the challenges with restarting at a lot of um destinations, venues, et cetera, that, that that's very, very important. Like you said, that that legacy and that experience is is hard to replace. Undoubtedly. While, while we're talking about challenges, are there any other challenges that you're thinking um, are coming up ahead that, that you'd like to highlight that you think um, venues, but also meeting professionals from, from all sorts of aspects should be aware of? Um I, th I think one of the areas, you know, and it links back, Miguel, to, you know, what we've been talking about in terms of the, the you know, the value of, of talent and, uh, and, and our people within our organization. So, yes, we've got to create stable environments for them where, you know, their work-life balance is healthy. They want to work for you as an organization. They feel they have a voice. So, so you know, all of that being said, one of the ways I think we do it is that we we shouldn't run away from innovation and automation, um, thinking that everything that we must do has to be in person and we're a hospitality organization. So, you know, that's what we do. It needs a person at the end of the telephone, particularly in the sales process side. Um, I think there does need to be better automation. There does need to be improved efficiencies there and and protect the hospitality element where people, where, where, where it's really needed um, on property, and in the you know in the attendee interaction piece there, so I hope that through um, technology automation and efficiencies, we can personalize experiences. We can manage dietary requirements. You know, as one example, even better than we have today. Um, we can you know I I hope as well that you know we we embrace for instance this this move towards um, you know healthier foods, health and well being you know, by being brave. And um, sometimes that's about redesigning menus, um, making something that was an exception, the norm, and making the one element that isn't so healthy, you know, the exception. So being brave in that regard, um, I think will serve us well into the future as we continue to evolve. You mentioned automation a little bit there. Um, 
And could you give us a few examples of where you think that that's kind of, you know, the opportunities around automation that you think are interesting? And I guess in some ways, is this uh, an RFP automation? Is that the main focus in terms of making that process more streamlined and just kind of making that work better? Or are there other areas of automation that you think are, are sort of part of your vision for the future of events? Well, um, RFP management is certainly one of the areas that's been historically a pain point even you know before three years ago. Um, but linked to that, I think the whole evaluation piece for venues the booking piece um the sourcing the live booking the rfp management you know the in honesty the better and more simplified route to finding a good match and the availability and a point to be able to book that efficiently is um, is all interconnected and we should be able to do that better than we do today without relying on you know third party organizations to do that for us so i think that that's one area that um i hope that we see better um better efficiencies and you know and a more enjoyable a more enjoyable um pathway for those wanting to find the best venue for their meeting um the other again is embracing you know just even the evaluation process as it relates to a venue um interestingly in the research we you know we're always interested to say at what point does the event size trigger an in-person site inspection versus, you know, an online inspection, for instance, and seeing, you know, having a walkthrough of the property or, or using, you know, something like all seated sort of virtual appraisal of a venue. Um, and there's still a strong appetite within the meeting planner community to have in-person site inspections at a venue, even for smaller numbers, but maybe as well, you know, the stages of evaluating a process, some of those can be online. And then once you've shortlisted, then your inspection process, once you actually think you've found the venue that's going to be a great match, is when you set foot on the property, as opposed to going and viewing five or six venues, which used to happen. And it's, again, not very efficient and not very sustainable. For sure. Um, do you see AI playing a role in all, all this? I mean, we just actually covered Plant, I think, has, is one of the first um, companies that I've seen that use AI as part of a venue sourcing uh, service. Um, are you seeing more of that? And, and do you think that's going to be part of this automation that you mentioned? So for, first of all, I don't think there's any evidence out there yet that suggests, you know, or rather goes beyond suggesting that it will play a, a part in the future and is actually something that is concrete. Um, I just think we're a little bit too early for that. I think it's easy to draw an opinion on something that's not established and have an opinion on it. So I'm going to try not to do that in my answer to you. Um, but I will say that it came up at a low level, I think 4% felt that within the next three years, meeting professionals, 275 meeting professionals, 4% felt that AI will play a role in the future. And certainly one of our debates around the Delegate 2028 talked about how AI could potentially be used from a perspective of, of influencing, for instance, what takes place at an event versus what takes place after an event. So the example that I, I know was given by um, Laurie Markham-Pugh, who, who represented that side of things on the panel discussion, you know, she really felt that um, 
that that actually will move away from you know attendees taking knowledge for an event and then applying it into the workplace after the event um to you know having the knowledge and creating the solution at the same time of the event for their organization um, and actually their job is done by the time they've left the event as opposed to needing to just take the idea into their organization so I find I find that interesting that the event might have more solution uh, and problem solving to it um, and AI could be a part of that but like I say um, uh, not that I'm cynical it, I just feel it's too embryonic um, you know, in its stage of evolution for us to decide how it has a role within live meetings. Interesting. I think that's a that's an interesting example. And anything that shortcuts the journey from inspiration to actually making part of your day-to-day -day work, I think is 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 worth keeping an eye on and, and, and worth it. Oh yeah, undoubtedly. I'm fascinated by by anything that affects the, you know, enriching of the content. Um, but also the creating of the solution whilst we've got people together, the power of people. Absolutely. Mark, it's been a pleasure having yeah, this conversation with you. Uh, I, I've enjoyed it tremendously. I want to start wrapping up and I wanted to get um, someone that you suggest or your suggestion for someone who should be on the podcast to join us at, at a future episode. Oh, and there's so many great individuals with the uh, fantastic perspectives that I have the pleasure of spending time with. So it's difficult um, for me. But um, we talked a little bit about um, automation and, and that that raises as many eyebrows as it does. It piques interest. And, and someone that I had a great conversation with at IMEX um, a couple of years ago was Kim Napolitano at, um, at Hilton corporate worldwide um and, and kim shared a view with myself that that actually it should and can have a place in terms of enriching and allowing us to deliver more hospitality in a personable level because of automation that takes place in the background so i'd encourage you to chat with kim she had different perspectives and of course she's responsible for a portfolio that um you know um is a major player in the industry i'd love that that'd be great We'd Glad to get an introduction. I think we can continue that automation conversation, which I think would be of interest to our listeners. So, Mark, thank you so much for, for joining us today. To everybody listening, hope you enjoyed that episode. Please don't forget to rate and subscribe to the podcast. And uh, looking forward to connecting with you, Mark, again soon. And uh, hopefully with our readers and our listeners uh, wherever we, we meet again. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Miguel.